Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 11 here in a moment. And so this has been the foundational passage. This has been the scripture that we've been standing on and we will stand on throughout this entire series, this Ephesians chapter 4 passage. And um, so what we're doing is we're creating a whole series based on this passage alone. And so uh, we did this last week. We're going to do it again this week. If, if you're ready and that offering bucket, bucket is passed, why don't you go ahead and stand? Um, we're going to read this entire portion of scripture to set the foundation for where we are going today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We're going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word here this morning. This is what it says. And he, talking about Jesus, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These are the five pillars that we're going to discuss in this series. And he gave these to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus gave these five pillars, these five gifts to equip, to empower, to strengthen the church. And if we are going to be a church that is effective, if we are going to be a church that is strong, we need to be a church that operates in all five of these pillars. We need to shore up these pillars to strengthen and reinforce these pillars because we will never be a church at full strength unless we do. And as we've said a couple of times already, and we'll keep saying, a church at full strength is impossible to stop. Amen? You guys go ahead and be seated. A church at full strength is impossible to stop. And so what we want to do in this series is we want to look at these pillars and we want to see how we can be more effective operating in these pillars and how we can be used uh, more individually within these pillars. And so last week we covered the evangelist. If uh, you missed last week, you want to catch up, all of our sermons are online or on our app, so you can catch up anytime you want. But this week, we're going to look at the pillar of the teacher. We're going to look at the pillar of the teacher. Last week was evangelist. This week, we're talking about the teacher. So school started for everyone last week. Many of you know. Uh, you saw it on Facebook all over the place, right? Every day you're seeing first day of school pictures on Facebook. Many of you have put up your own first day of school pictures for your kids. And it's always kind of a fun day. You take them outside, you snap the picture in front of the house, and then you send them on their way. I was looking through some of those pictures on Facebook and seeing those first day of school pictures. And I want to show you my favorite, one that I found on Facebook from somebody here in our church. And, and, uh, and this is what it is. Um, it says this, if you're too far away to read it. It says, another year in the books. Man, where has the time gone? She's growing up so fast. Pretty soon she'll be old enough to pack her own lunch. First day of fourth grade, have fun and make lots of friends. And, uh, and if you can't tell, uh, this is Becky Jensen. She's one of our teachers here. Uh, 
<laughs> when I came across that, I just thought that was hilarious. It just made me laugh. And, uh, and so Becky, she is teaching fourth grade this year. She's obviously not a student. Um, but, uh, but they're a part of our church, and we love them dearly. I just thought that was fun. So um, Miss Jensen is one of the many teachers that we have who are a part of this church. And I know that there are many others who are in this church that teach. You guys work at schools, grade schools, high schools, colleges, and stuff like that. And some of you are part of the administration and faculty and all of those things. And I just want to say um, a great big thank you. As the school year starts, just thank you so much. Thank you for loving those kids. Thank you for being uh, an example of Jesus. Thank you for being men and women of integrity. Thank you for standing strong for your moral beliefs. And thank you for representing Jesus and the kingdom of God well. Thank you for loving them. Thank you for caring for them in a place and a time where they often don't seem to care about much. And so thank you for doing that. So for those of you who are working in our school systems from the bottom of my heart, I want to say and let you know how much I appreciate you. And so can we just give them a hand here this morning? You all don't get nearly enough credit and appreciation, so just know that we love you and that we're praying for you through this school year. However, all that being said, as we stated several times here in this series, when we're talking about these gifts, when we're talking about these pillars, we are considering them in a little bit of a different light. And so when we talk about teachers this morning, I want you to know that we're not just talking about um, paid professional teachers. We're not just talking about those who teach for a living. We're not just talking about those that have the title or the role. Rather, we want to consider these pillars as ministry gifts that God gave to equip and to grow the church. And when God gave these, he gave every single one of us the right, the obligation, and the opportunity to operate in these pillars. Some of us are gifted and some of us are stronger in these pillars than others, but every single one of us have a right, an obligation, and a responsibility to operate in these pillars. And so we're talking about the teacher pillar. The purpose of the teacher pillar is to keep the Christian faith rooted in the truth. It's to keep the Christian faith rooted in the truth. We must know the truth, we must cherish the truth, and we must be willing to pursue the truth. In a world where that gets so muddied, where truth seems to be relative, or your truth can be different than my truth, we need to know what the truth, the true truth, is. We need to know what the real truth is. And the purpose of the teacher pillar is to be rooted in the truth, to keep the Christian faith rooted in the truth. Conversion is the first step, but it's not the final step. Conversion is the first step, but it's not the final step. When somebody chooses to commit their heart and their life to Jesus, that's great, and we celebrate that. We look at that as, as a new birth. Many people refer to that as being born again, and we see that, but that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 says this. Um, it's what we often refer to as the Great Commission. It's one of Jesus' final instruction to the church and to the believers before he goes to heaven, and this is what he says. He says, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations,' baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If that's the first step, then we need verse 20, which says this, teaching them, this is massively important, teaching them 
to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Go and make disciples and teach them. A part of our divine calling as believers is to operate as teachers. Jesus didn't just tell the teachers to go teach. He says, go, all of you, therefore, and make disciples and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. There is a lot of stuff in this scripture that is difficult to fathom, to difficult to understand. And so we need teachers to teach. We need to do our best to become teachers, to grow people up in discipleship and to grow them into a more clear identification and image of Jesus Christ. And so what I've done, because we can't overlook this area, what I've done is put together a list of what kind of teachers we need and what kind of teachers we need to be. And I'm not pulling these points specifically from the Bible, as you're going to see in just a minute, but they're descriptors for what kind of teachers we need, and more importantly, what kind of teachers we need to be, because God has called every single one of us to teach. And so let's look at this list here this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It says this, we need medium-rare teachers. We need medium-rare teachers. Several weeks ago, my brother was in town, and my kids were super excited to see him, or more accurately, they were excited to see his new baby, baby Ava, and my four- and five-year-old girls, they were just so excited, they couldn't wait for RG to get here because he was bringing baby Ava, and they wanted to hold baby Ava. That's all they want to do. We want to hold the baby. We want to hold the baby. We want to hold the baby, and so when they got here, and they got squared away, and everything was calmed down, they were asking again, can we hold the baby? Can we hold the baby? And so what do we do, just like you always do with little kids who want to hold the baby? You put them on the couch, right? At the end of the couch, you prop their arms up underneath pillows and things like that. That, and then you very gently put the baby in their arms and they just stay there like this. They don't move. They don't try to do anything or comfort. They just sort of stay there like a statue and hold the baby and they just love it. Like it's the greatest thing ever, right? They're just holding the baby. Oh, look at the baby. The baby loves me. Oh, she smiled at me and all that stuff. And then what always happens is the baby will start crying at some point, right? And, you know, sometimes they'll try to move and wiggle, but the mamas are like, no, no, don't touch him and the aunts and uncles. Um, and so they just kind of stay there and they kind of do this bounce thing. And once the baby starts crying, too much, somebody will come and grab the baby. And so they were holding baby Ava. You know, she started crying and fussing. And so I picked baby Ava up and she was crying pretty hard. And then I worked my baby whisper her magic on her. And in about two seconds, she had stopped crying, right? And so I was bouncing her in. And the girls were pretty excited about that, but they were disappointed because they thought the baby liked me more than she liked them. And so uh, they were telling everybody, they were telling Melissa and everybody else, yeah, baby Ava really loves daddy. She really loves daddy because every time daddy picks her up, she stops crying. And, um, you know, I don't know that she liked me more than she liked the girls, although I am very likable, right? <laughs> Humble, handsome, all of those things are true. But the reality is I've matured to the point as a father that I know how to hold and comfort a crying baby, okay? As a father of five kids, I don't know that it's altogether impressive that I can pick up a baby who's fussing and get that child to stop, right? I mean, because I have five kids on my own. I think by the time you have five kids, that's just kind of expected, right? 
Like, it would be really, really weird if I asked RJ if I could hold his baby, and I went and sat down on the couch, and I got the pillow propped up, and I got my arms, and I said, okay, I'm ready, right? Lay the baby in my arms. I'm not moving, right? That would be really, really weird because I have matured, and I've grown to the point where I can hold a baby. There's a natural cycle of growth and maturity, and so if I held a baby like I was four, it would just be weird, right? Be odd. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, Paul writes this, and in this, he, he comes across with a very frustrated tone, and I want you to see this. Um, there's sometimes in Scripture that the author is frustrated when he's writing, and he, and he wants to make a point, and so this is what he's saying in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He says this, he says, and this we have, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch, Right? Like, there's a lot that we want to talk about. We want to go really deep in this area. We want to consider this. But it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. It's hard to explain. I want to go in this direction. I want to do this. But you're not listening. You've stopped trying. You've stopped growing. He says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's identifying the importance and the value of this role, by this time because you've been in it long enough, you've heard it long enough, you've been doing this long enough, by this time you, have, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He goes on to say, verse 13, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We want to take you into this direction. We want to teach you these things. We want to go here. But it's too hard to explain because you guys aren't even trying. You have no idea what the truth is. You're not grounded in the truth. Milk is for babies. Meat is for those who have grown and matured and have found out their powers of discernment. Now, how do you do that? How do you discover? How do you grow in those powers of discernment? You have got to know what the truth is. You have got to ground your faith in what is true. You have to read. You have to study. You have to pray. You have to meditate. You have to consider what Scripture says because this is the source of truth. And so the author is saying, like, look, we want to go in this direction, but you're kind of acting like babies. You need milk, not solid food. We want to take you deeper, but you're not ready to go. When it comes to your spiritual maturity, he's saying you should have grown to the point where you are eating meat, but you're still drinking milk. We need medium-rare teachers. We need medium-rare teachers. Teachers. And so we say that we need meat eaters, right? And so we're going to call it medium rare, medium rare because um, nobody wants their stuff well done, right? <laughs> Get that well done meat out of here. It has to be medium. That's the only way to cook your meat. And so we need medium rare teachers. The church desperately needs teachers. And so it desperately needs believers, Christians, to grow up. Amen. It isn't cute, it isn't cool, it isn't funny to live in spiritual ignorance or embrace spiritual immaturity. It's time for us to grow up. It's time for us as believers to put down the baby bottle and ditch the diapers. It's time for us to grow, to learn, to discover, to experience. It's time for us to 
mature. We need medium-rare teachers. We need meat-eaters. We need people who are willing to do it, people who are willing to discover, people who are willing and ready to grow individually so that they can help us grow as a church. Here's a grid, a simple question to know whether or not you're living on milk or meat. It's just an easy, uh, easy question, but it, it says this, who is feeding me? Who is feeding me? Ask yourself that question. Who is feeding me? Because babies, when they drink or eat their milk, they have to have somebody give them that milk. They have to have somebody feed them, right? Who is feeding me? Steak eaters, meat eaters, don't often sit there and have other people feed them, right? Usually by the time that you're eating meat, you have the ability to feed yourself, and you do feed yourself. You don't want other people to feed you, right? Unless you're having like a romantic dinner and you're... Eh, something like that. Who is feeding me? Who is feeding me? Babies need somebody to feed them milk. Steak eaters usually cut and feed themselves. Is the bulk of your Christian diet the Sunday sermon? Is this, the, is this really the only time that you talk about Jesus, that you think about Jesus, that you study Jesus, or that you, you listen to somebody who has studied Jesus talk to you? Is this about the only time that you pray? Is this about the only time that you consider like, where God is in your life? Is it just a Sunday morning time? Are you relying on me to feed you? If so, you're, you're living on milk. You haven't matured. Or are you spending quality and intentional time feeding yourself? Are you reading books throughout the week on spiritual growth? Are you studying the Bible on your own? Are you praying? Are you reading scripture? Are you meditating on scripture? Are you memorizing scripture? Are you listening to sermons and other podcasts that will enhance your relationship with the Lord? How much time throughout the week are you spending feeding yourself? Who's feeding me? Who is feeding me? That's a question that we all have to ask. Is, am I depending on everybody else or the pastor to feed me? Or am I taking time to feed myself? That's the difference between milk and meat. We need medium rare teachers. We need people who are willing to feed themselves. You can't feed somebody else if you don't know how to feed yourself. Does that make sense? Number two, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We need sore teachers. We need sore teachers. Number one, we need medium rare teachers. Number two, we need sore teachers. This last Tuesday, my family went to the pool. We were squeezing in the last few drops of summer before school started, and it was kind of cool that day, and so there wasn't a lot of people there, and so we went to the diving board area. We were just going off the diving board over and over and over again and jumping and you know doing all that stuff. And um, Titus. He is, uh, my youngest son, he is just a flipping fool. Not like in the derogatory way, like he flips all the time, just flips and flips and flips and flips. And, um, and you know, he kind of just does it and makes it look good and everybody else wants to do it, but all the rest of us are a little bit more scared and skittish when it comes to flipping. And, um, and so he's over there just flipping like a maniac off the diving board and and some of my others were wanting to flip too. And so I'm standing there on the sideline and I'm encouraging. I said, man, you just got to go for it. You just got to jump and spin. And, and um, man, you just got to believe in your head. I know it's scary, but you just got to get up there. You tell yourself you can do it before you get up there. Just determine in your mind that you're going to do it and go for it. Well, what if I get hurt? Well, it's not going to hurt for very long. You know, you're going to be fine. 
<clears throat> so I'm encouraging them to do it. And they get up there and they, they run and they get ready to jump and then they just do this weird little awkward thing and they don't flip. So I'm like, come on, you can do it. Just tell yourself to do it. And uh, they said, well, Dad, I'll do it if you do it. And I'm like, listen, listen. Like, I'm the dad, right? I have, I have earned my right to sit on the sideline and just spout wisdom to you. Because there are some things that I, I'm good at. There are some things that I can do. But controlling my body in the air is not one of them. Like, I have no coordination with, like, flips and that stuff in the air. I, I just... I don't know what I look like, but it's embarrassing to even think about. I have no mid-air coordination. And so they said, Daddy, if you do it, I'll do it. And so I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I get up there, and I get ready. And I, okay, I run up there, and I, and I bounce. I'm going to flip, and then I just do the weird, awkward chicken-out jump like they did. See, Daddy, you can't do it either. I said, I'm going to do it. And so I, after about seven or eight chicken out jumps, I just tell myself, okay, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to do this. And, and I just, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm, and I run out there, and I jump, and I do the flip in the air, and it's like this glorious moment, and I'm like falling into the water like this, and my arms were spread out like this, and they slapped on the water so hard. My arms were just killing me when I came in. And I came up, and I go, ow! Oh! And they said, Daddy, did it hurt? No, I'm fine. My arms just stung, man. Oh, they stung. It hurt so bad. And so I get up there, and I'm going to do it again. And I know this time to keep my arms in, right? I've learned my lesson. And so I get up there. I'm ready. I jump up. I do another flip. I keep my arms in, but I don't rotate fast enough. And I hit my whole, like, backside and my legs just flat on the, on the, the water. And, oh, that stung worse than my arms. Oh, Daddy, did it hurt? No, man, I'm good. I'm good. Just do it. You can do it. All week I've been hurting. <laughs> but that pain gave me a better perspective to teach from. You know what I mean? That, that pain allowed me to teach from a totally different position. You see, I engaged in the experience instead of relying on some sort of self-proclaimed expertise. I engaged, I was there, I was involved, I was doing it with them. I, I experienced the same sort of pain that they were afraid of. You know what I'm talking about? In the Christian world, we have way too many experts without any experience. We have way too many people telling us what to do, how to do it, while never actually getting involved themselves. We will never be a church that operates at full strength unless we will begin to engage ourselves in the experience of what it means to follow Jesus, what it really means to follow Jesus. We need sore teachers. We need teachers who have experienced what they are teaching. We need teachers who have experienced the pain. We need teachers who have taken divine risks. We need teachers who have stood on that spot where they know if I go forward where God is telling me to go, it's going to be risky. We need teachers who know and understand what that fear feels like. We need teachers who have tried things and failed, and we need teachers who have gone down wrong paths and then course corrected and came down right ones. We need teachers who have experienced the pain of what it means to bear your cross and follow Jesus. We need teachers who can tell us from experience what it's like. 
We need teachers who can say, you know what? I've been at that same point that you were at where God told me to do this. And I told him no. And I told him no again. And I told him no again. And I told him no again. And then finally, years later, I said, okay, God, whatever you want, I'll I'll do it. And I did it. And this is what I've missed out on because we need teachers who can speak from experience. Believers who have practical, experiential knowledge and not just a theory. We need sore teachers. I've, I've known of Christian leaders who have talked at length about giving and tithing and saying all the right things and quoting all the right scriptures. And man, they had a great message. You come to find out that they don't give anything. There's no anointing. There's no power in that kind of a teaching. We need teachers who are sore. We need teachers who are living out the message that they're trying to preach. We can't just tell it. We have to show how to do it. We have to be people who are able to relate in all aspects to the fear. You know, it's funny. I'm standing up there on the board and I'm yelling at the kids, stop being afraid. Stop being scared. It's not going to hurt. But when you get up there, there's a little bit of anxiety to there. Right? We need teachers who have felt that fear, who have felt the pain, that can relate to the sting of failure. Consider Peter for a second. Peter knew pain. Peter understood pain. On the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter not only denied that he was a follower of Jesus, and and think about this, Peter was a follower, but, but Peter was in the circle and then he was in the inner circle. Like there, there was the circle of 12, and then Peter was in the inner circle of the 12. Peter wasn't just a follower. He was like a close, close follower. He was one of the big three. And Peter not only denied that he was a follower of Jesus, he denied that he even knew who Jesus was. I don't know him any more than you do. Right? Then the rooster crows. Scripture says Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly because he had denied Jesus three times. And I wonder, you think about what what happened the next day when the rooster crowed again in that morning. My guess is Peter felt the pain of his failure again. And then the next day when the rooster crowed again, there's no doubt Peter was thinking, what have I done? I denied that I was a follower. I denied, no, I, I cussed at that little girl. She was accusing me of knowing Jesus, I told her I didn't. Rooster crows, and every day that rooster is a reminder, you're a failure. You're a failure. You're a failure. But Jesus didn't want him to stay there, and Jesus rose from the dead victoriously on, on Sunday, and he goes out to restore Peter. And an interesting side note is that when Scripture tells us that he went out to restore Peter, he did it early in the morning. And I wonder if it wasn't right around the time the rooster began to crow. Verse 17 of John chapter 21. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, which is Peter, his name is Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Verse 18, Jesus goes on, Truly, truly, I say to you, whenever, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus tells Peter, Jesus restores Peter. Jesus calls Peter to follow him again, basically recalls Peter as a disciple. And then he tells him, you're going to die a martyr's death for Jesus. And then he says, follow me. So Jesus is saying, look, you know pain. You're going to be able to lead through pain. And then you are going to, because of your experience following me, experience pain again. But all of this pain that you are experiencing in your, in your uh, attempt, in your willingness, in your effort to follow me is going to give you a platform to do great things for the kingdom of God. We need sore teachers. Jesus is saying, your failure, Peter, your experience is going to empower your future. I wonder if the reason why this pillar is lacking power is because we have too many teachers standing on the sidelines telling other believers how they're so supposed to be carrying their cross. I wonder if it's because we have too many people on the sidelines saying, no, you're not carrying the cross the right way. Those aren't the right clothes. You've got to put different clothes on to be carrying that cross. You're not carrying it at the right angle. You're not going in the right direction. You're not carrying it with a smile on your face, brother. I wonder if we lack power in this pillar because we have too many teachers telling us how to carry our cross when they don't ever attempt to pick up their own. We need sore teachers. We need teachers who are willing to get involved, who are willing to embrace the process. We need teachers who are willing to do what they're saying to do. We need medium rare teachers. We need teachers who are mature. We need sore teachers, teachers who are engaged. Number three, we need tired teachers. We need tired teachers. When I was in college, I had lots of 725 classes, and it was really hard to stay awake in those early classes in college. Can anybody relate? A couple of you. I, I took notes. I was a pretty good note taker, and there was often times that I would be in the middle of taking notes and kind of dozing at the same time. So I would, I would start the word like, you know, predestination, but it wouldn't say predestination. It would say predestination, scribble, you know, fall asleep, just mid-note taking. And I thought, man, I'm taking notes in tongues. It's kind of awesome. I'm very Pentecostal. <laughs> very Pentecostal. You'd snap out of it, you'd look at your paper, and you're like, what is this? Scribbles everywhere. You know, you're just trying and fighting to stay awake. In, in life, there's no shortage of tired students, but the reality is we need tired teachers. We need tired teachers. You see, we too often think of teachers as the person in the front of the class, behind the podium, they're speaking, everybody else is listening, they're the sage on the stage. But we need teachers who are willing to get involved, we need teachers who are willing to follow. We need teachers who are willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes. I came across something the other day that I've never noticed before. I don't know why I haven't noticed. I just didn't, I guess. And I found it really interesting. And, and I, I want you to consider three people, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were disciples of Jesus. They were part of the 12, but they had a special place. They had a special position in relationship 
with Jesus. They had special access to Jesus. They, they, they had more uh, um, opportunity to talk and engage with Jesus than any of the other disciples. And I want to share with you a couple of times that, that they experienced this. Worship team, you guys can come and, and, and get ready. In Luke chapter 8, verse 49, Jesus went to the house of a man named Jairus. And this guy, his daughter, had died. And so Jesus goes to the house, and as they're getting ready to go into the house, Jesus says, wait a second, I don't want anybody else coming with me. Everybody else stay here, stay outside of the house. He says, mom and dad, you guys can come with me. Let's go up and let's, let's do this. And then he says, oh wait, Peter, James, and John, I want you guys to come with me too. And so what happened is Peter, James, and John, they were following Jesus. And then when Jesus invited them into a special opportunity, they continued to follow Jesus up the stairs into the bedroom. Jesus prayed, Jesus anointed, and this girl rose from the dead. And so Peter, James, and John, with their eyes were able to watch the reality that Jesus has the power over life and death. They knew this because they got to see it, because they were willing to follow. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus told Peter, James, and John to come with him. Jesus was going up to the mountain. He says, hey, see that mountain up there? I'm going to go up on that mountain. I'm going to pray. Everybody else stay here. Jesus says, I'm going to go up there. And he says, Peter, James, and John, I want you guys to come with me. And so Peter, James, and John, they went up the mountain with Jesus. Jesus began to pray. Scripture tells us that something happened. Jesus began to change. His face lit up. His clothes shone like the sun. Jesus was revealing a portion of his glory to Peter, James, and John. And then all of a sudden, Moses showed up and Elijah showed up. And then this great big booming voice from heaven, from the clouds, said, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John were like, sounds good to us. We'll do that. And they got to see with their eyes the glory of Jesus revealed in a small portion. They got to hear with their physical ears God from heaven booming down. This is my son. Listen to him. They were able to do that because they were willing to follow Mark chapter 13, Peter, James, and John were there. Andrew got to be in on this little meeting. They're having a private conversation with Jesus, and Jesus was telling them how everything was going to end, that Jesus would come back and return in glory and power and set everything right, and some of the signs of the end times, you can see that there. But they had that conversation because they were willing to follow. We need tired teachers. Matthew chapter 26, this one ends a little bit differently, but I want you to see this. So on the night before Jesus was to be crucified, he led the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Many of you know the story, but I want you to consider the details. Verse 36 says this, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Consider this. Jesus leads his disciples to the garden. He says, Okay, guys, I'm going to go in there and pray. I want you guys to sit tight and just wait for me. I'm going to go a little deeper into the garden to pray. Verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which were James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So, so catch this. Guys, you stay here. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to pray. Peter, James, and John, I want you guys to come with me. So the majority of them stayed. Peter, James, and John, they go with Jesus. And Scripture says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And so they got to see 
more. They, got to, they, they, they began to see sort of something change, some of the um, uh, deep spiritual anxiety because of what was about to happen began to well up inside of him, and they got to access Jesus in a way that none of the others did. And he tells them, Peter, James, and John, you guys sit tight. I'm going to go in a little bit deeper. I want you to, to watch and pray. Let's get that scripture. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. So Jesus says, Peter, James, and John, I want you guys to stay here. I want you to watch and pray. I'm gonna go in a little deeper and I'm gonna spend some time myself in prayer. You know the story. Jesus spent some time praying. Verse 40, he comes back to the disciples and found them sleeping. Jesus goes in a little bit further to pray. He comes back to Peter, James, and John, and he says, hey guys, What's going on? He found them sleeping. And I know that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they get a bad rap for sleeping there in the garden, and rightly so. I mean, they're, they're just hours away from the greatest event that is ever going to happen in human history, and they're sleeping. But can we at least admit that their exhaustion came as a result of faithfully following Jesus? Right? They fell asleep, and they shouldn't have, and I get that. But everywhere we see Jesus, we see Peter, James, and John. Every sort of side mission that Jesus goes on, there is Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes up the mountain, Peter, James, and John go up the mountain. When Jesus sits, Peter, James, and John sit. When Jesus goes into the house, Peter, James, and everywhere that Jesus goes, there go Peter, James, and John. And I don't know for sure, but my guess is it would have probably been a pretty exhausting task to follow Jesus everywhere he goes. Because everywhere Jesus goes, there are crowds. Everywhere Jesus goes, there are people. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's something to do. And so my guess is Peter, James, and John were pretty tired. So they fell asleep. They shouldn't have, but they did. They weren't lazy. They were following. Jesus is the leader. We are the followers. We must be willing to follow. When Jesus says move, we have to move. When Jesus invites us, we have to say yes. When Jesus speaks, we have to perk up and listen. Paul refers to the Christian life as a race. If you aren't tired at the end of your race, you didn't run the race right. You guys know what I'm talking about? Watch those Olympic races, those long distance races, the 5,000 meter, the 10,000 meter. None of those people finished the race with anything left to give. Just collapsing, exhausted. If you're not tired at the end of the race, you didn't run the race right. If we're going to restore this pillar of teaching, if we're going to impact those around us by teaching them about Jesus, we have to stop playing it safe. We have to stop conserving our energy all the time. And I'm convinced that the only reason why we conserve energy is because we don't believe God when he says, those who wait upon me will be renewed. I will restore their strength. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And so the reason why we conserve our strength is we, because we don't believe that God will restore our strength. If we begin to give our all to follow him, we'll become tired for sure, but Jesus will restore. We need tired teachers. We need to stop conserving our energy and get serious about following him. In the book, I Am a Follower, Leonard Sweet writes this. He says, you and I are never leaders, only followers. The best we can aspire to is to become first followers, not followers who then go on to become leaders. 
We're always followers, followers first and then first followers. Even when we are summoned to the front of the line, we still are behind our leader. And we talk about leadership all the time and leadership is important, but this is a great reminder, a great perspective that no matter what position of leadership we rise to or aspire to, we are always followers. Jesus is always the leader, always. And we have to be willing to follow. Stand your feet all across this place. You can't hope to be an effective teacher until you learn to be a faithful follower. And so it comes down to this. This morning as we're talking about the pillar of the teacher, we talk about restoring and re-energizing this pillar, what we can do to be effective in this. Because there will be baby Christians who need you to follow well baby Christians who need you to follow Jesus well so that you can teach them effectively, right? Your church needs you to follow Jesus well so that you can teach effectively. Your life group needs you to follow Jesus well so that you can teach effectively. Your kids need you to follow well so that you can teach them effectively. Your grandkids need you to follow well so that you can teach effectively. Your neighborhood, your co-workers need you to follow Jesus well so that you can teach effectively because there's going to be just a few moments just a few opportunities that you have with some of those co-workers with some of those neighbors there may just be a moment that they ask you a question if you're not following Jesus well if you're not grounded in the word if you're not sure of the truth that opportunity may pass you completely by follow well we need medium rare teachers. We need sore teachers who have done it. Follow well. We need teachers who have experienced it. We need teachers who know in their mind. We need teachers who, who, who know, not just because they have a feeling or they have a gut, but they, they know in their mind because they've seen it, they've felt it, they've experienced it. There's a, there's a story in scripture where there's a blind man that was healed. Jesus touched him, he healed him. Some of the religious leaders, they were upset, were like, tell us how this happened. What is, what is going on? How does Jesus do that? And he says to them, look, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why. I, I can't tell you anything. All I know is this. I was blind and now I'm not. That's what I know. I know with my head because that's what happened to me. We need teachers who have lived it. We need teachers who are following so close to Jesus that at a moment's notice, they are ready to pour out their knowledge about Jesus into somebody else. We need this pillar to be strong. We will never know the real truth about Jesus from someone who doesn't follow Jesus, and so we must be followers. We can restore this pillar if the church is willing to follow. But we have to decide as individuals that, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. As we consider the application point and the closing of this, I was really trying to figure out what God would want for us in this time. And it seems obvious to me that the application point of this is not necessarily what happens here around the altars. The Holy Spirit already moved in a powerful way around these altars. But what I do next, 
where I go next, what happens from here. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit would, would say, I'm looking for people who will commit to know me with their mind. I'm looking for people who will commit to discover the truth. I'm looking for people who will commit to love me with all of their mind. Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, I think that the Holy Spirit would say to us today, I'm looking for people who will commit to love me with all of their mind who will study the word, who will dig into the word, who will put themselves into positions to experience God so they not only are able to teach from the word, but to teach from experience. I think the Holy Spirit is looking for people who will commit to love the Lord with all their mind, to know the truth, how did this happen? I don't know. All I can tell you is what I've seen. To love the Lord with all your mind. We're going to close in prayer. I'm just going to ask, if, if that's you, if, if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on you to begin to pursue God, pursue the love of God with all of your mind, I just ask you to just real quickly, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just slip up your hand real quick. If you feel the Lord tugging on your heart that way, man, I, maybe this is an area I've been lacking. Maybe I've been allowing somebody else to do all the feeding. Maybe I've been lazy and experiencing God, um, and I just need to do this. Would you just raise your hand up? Two. I want to say a prayer for you. I want to say a prayer for everybody. So let's close this way. If you're comfortable, let's just have everybody raise your hands all across this place. In submission and surrender to God, all across this place, if you're comfortable. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for these pillars. Thank you for the truth. God, I pray that you would raise teachers up out of this place who are mature, teachers out of this place who have experienced you in divine and mighty and powerful ways, and teachers that are right now at this very moment following you faithfully. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would stir up such a passion, such a desire inside of us to follow you and to love you with all of our mind that, that we become hungry for more. Lord Jesus, and as we go and as we leave this place and as we run into opportunities to teach, opportunities to tell, opportunities to explain the power, the mystery, the love of Jesus, I pray that we would be so grounded in the word and so knowledgeable of the truth that these answers would come easy and Holy Spirit directed. Father, I pray that you would go with us, your people. I pray that you would empower us, your people. I pray that you would continue to wrap your loving arms of grace and mercy around us, your people. Creating in us a greater desire to love you with all of our mind. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.